the <coughs> theme for the afternoon talk is the gods and the self. In ancient India, the sages, the swamis, the yogis, the meditators, the renunciates, the sannyasins, looked very carefully and very attentively to this whole experience of life and endeavoured to strip away much of the superficiality which meets and confronts our life to sense and feel and experience and perceive lives in radically different ways. They looked at some of the prevalent views which were around, which were subscribed to, and endeavoured to find and explore ways in life to help us look in quite fresh ways. One of the characteristic features of this country, of course, and we will be familiar with as we spend our time, our days and months here, is the area of the gods, the gods of India. And the gods of India play an extremely significant, a rather profound role in life, in our life. And there was a clear movement away from what most of us who come from Western culture and religion have is a movement away from monotheism. And I just want to speak a couple of minutes uh, around this. Though we, may, though we may be atheist or theist here, most of us from the international community have been brought up with a view, a strongly held view, a view which has been strongly adhered to, is that there is one God, the function and the role of this one God is uh, to create, that God created this world and created human beings, and in the creation of human beings, said to us that if we believe in the one God, if we believe in the messengers of God, whether it's called the book, the prophet, or the saviour, then through that means we can return back to God. So God enters into an agreement or engagement with the world and creates hum human beings who are then told that we can return to God for eternity through the vehicle of the book, the prophet or the saviour. And this view, monotheistic view, has moved for 2,000, 3,000 years or more through our society. Often, for some, with an unquestioning obedience, a belief in it which doesn't allow any other way to look, fundamentalist uh, views here, and for many, and perhaps many of us in this room here, simply cannot accept this view of reality. Simply cannot buy it, cannot identify with it nor adopt it. And therefore it has gone out of our consciousness. And one of the reasons amongst the many, which the belief in the single God who loves us and cares for us and brings us, will bring us back to him if we believe, 
is the gap of what you and I know is as love and what we see on this earth for the innocent and the not innocent, for the terrible anguish and suffering, for the hatred and the violence, the, the rape and the killings, the torture and the hell. How could a God, who we are told loves us, possibly allow such horror and terror to take place either in his name or not in his name but still to take place and that gap is so big that it's an unbridgeable gap the saints and sages of India looked at this and just could not buy this belief system could not take it on board and that is why monotheism is not a feature of India simply because it's uh, a gap which is too far, too big as well as the fact of course that all those men and women who have lived on the earth past and present who have never heard the word God never heard of the Saviour never heard of the sacred book never heard of the prophet what happens to them? <coughs> Eternal damnation hell forever and I remember years ago when the president of India um, had some evangelists knocking on uh, his uh, front door, Dr. Radhakrishna. Yeah, I think it was in Chennai. And there were Christian missionaries knocking on the front, his front door. And of course, as happens with their enthusiasm, it's a polite word for something else, <laughs> <coughs> knocking on the front door, trying to persuade him to give up his gods, to give up the exploration that has taken place in India, to renounce the wonderful translation he made of the Bhagavad Gita, and putting that kind of pressure. They were rather aggressive, he said, forceful, demanding, and were not open to any dialogue or exchange. He said to them, rather quietly, a rather gentle man, he said to them, what can Jesus do for me what he surely hasn't done for you? <laughs> Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> Sometimes we forget, if we've been talking here, how you and I and others, we can tighten around the view be absolutely certain of the position and in that tightening certain of the position then we have the believers and the non-believers and the best spiritual India the inquiring India the profoundly philosophical India looked into all of this and it took a great interest and still does in the best sense of things and this is important here it, takes a, took, it took and takes a great interest in what we might call the movement of the forces of life and put three of them among the many, I'll speak about a few others but for the moment, three of them and so what, one great force of life is the force of creation the force of the entering into life it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? how in the forces of nature 
events, circumstances, movements, evolutions, whatever you want to call it, just enter into the field of this existence. Powerful forces. Look at the diversity in the nature. Look what's arising day in and day out. The multiplicity of it all is it's extraordinary. The name given was Brahma, the force of creation. And people respected and revered and acknowledged this force, which was called Brahma, which we can feel, sense. And how it also, not only does it move and arise in life, this great force, this great god of activity, but also it sustains itself. Look into life, look, look, look at the sustainability of it. Look at the potency of it all. It is quite remarkable and extraordinary what we are engaged and participating The name was given to this great god, Vishnu. It sustains itself, it moves itself in this great field that we are engaged in. And then, what about the forces that end things? Death, the fading away, the destruction, the completion, the finality that goes on. Something arises, it stays, and it goes, and it goes, and it's gone. And so it gave the name Shiva. Force of the rising sting. And the Buddha, while acknowledging this, said, let's also look carefully. Let's look so carefully as a human being that we take a real interest in life. In these three gods, these three forces. He lowered the he didn't drop the word God or gods. He lowered the temperature of the word gods, to help, as it were, look behind. Why? Because whatever matters to our life is connected to, tied up with, inseparable from that which arises, that which stays, and that which passes and dies. (coughs) Our life, and in this movement, and this force of life, which brings us into this extraordinary field, is deeply, sincerely interested, involved, painfully or contentedly with the movement of what arises in life, in our life, in the movement of what stays in our life, and in the movement of what passes in our life. Try and think of anything which is not involved in one of those three. You can't. You can't. An extraordinary interest in it. Except for one thing we'll touch on in a minute. India also did something else. I'm talking about ancient India, not this, uh, what you call it, modern economic power India. I'm talking about India of its deep traditions. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, I love it. (laughs) The light goes out, modern India. It comes, it stays for a few minutes, and it goes. <laughs> God is all revealing. <laughs> and all taking away. <laughs> I love it. Sometimes there is a synchronicity, one goes, whoa, whoa. <laughs> rather had some too. <clears throat> so ancient India, looking into this, arising and staying and passing, looking to these forces, the gods' movement, also did 
engaged in something else. In looking at human beings, this is rather, rather precious and contrast it with uh, our own culture and environment. And not only did it acknowledge the forces there, not only the great acts of, of uh, the gods of creativity, of uh, renunciation, of love, of the erotic, of passion. You would find the gods and the goddesses deeply engaged in this and what India did saw certain human beings in this world both past and present who represented who became the gods they became our gods and when one looks back in this extraordinary long tradition of this country 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 years right back to the Mahabharata right back to the Vedas and the whole extraordinary tradition one has the appearances of the gods in human form and the gods in human form this is precious here the gods in human form yes speak to us of the ordinariness of being alive speak to us of the conventionalities of being of engaging uh, and manifesting in the form of birth aging pain and death in the form of appearing in this world staying in this world and the transit transitions of the mortality of our own existence speak to us of that remind us of that encourage us to look at that but also the gods speak to us of something greater than that and therefore the gods of India speak to us of something not just of birth, ageing, pain and death not just of forces of arising, staying and passing but something which transcends the person transcends the impermanence of it all and they are the gods and these gods past and present, are vital for humanity. We need our gods because they speak to us of something greater than themselves of which they are part. And there's something still in India, in spite of the humanity of the gods, past and present, in spite of the quote-unquote failings of the gods, still there is something in the recognition which is kept alive we have destroyed this tradition in the West. We do have a tradition of the gods. We have it from ancient Greek, Greece. But in the West, we cannot tolerate our gods anymore. And so whenever the gods appear, they have to be destroyed. Even, even the, the gods called celebrities, the gods that we build up, the stars, you know, the secular social gods that we have made who we look up to and they're in awe of if we happen to meet or bump into or whatever it, uh, it might be. Even these ordinary gods, the, the stars of our West, they have to be destroyed. We have our whole army of reporters and photographers and journalists digging into their personal lives, getting as much scandal as possible finding what we can do to bring them down, to make them as mundane as possible, even with our social gods. We are, we are destroyers. And this destruction, this violence against the gods, unfortunately, it happens in every area. 
religious life, social, political, entertainment life or whatever. And somehow in that destructiveness that takes place, we may be missing the whisper of something greater than the self. The sense of, to use the word, immortality. The sense of something in which the human being, revealed as the God, actually communicates something which is immeasurable, something greater. And we are in real need of this. We need our gods. India, to its great credit, past and present, has recognised the gods. <coughs> Just a few weeks ago, we were in Delhi, and we went to a lovely bhajan of one of the uh, the gods of current gods of India, one of the, the great gurus of uh, India. Maybe two, three, four, five thousand people. Large posters, uh, which are there. The bhajan's taking place. The name of the, of the guru, Sri Sri Ravishankar, the name, this particular one. Yeah. And it struck me as we were there and just watching and listening, with all the love and devotion that's being given to this person living on this earth at this present time, who is an inspiration and insight for so many people. And it struck me, this is not possible in the West. We might make our gods... <coughs> from the East. But for a Westerner, we can't have such gods. We'd have to find a scandal. We'd have to find something to destroy. We can't allow ourselves as, to experience a Westerner as a god. It's not permitted. Such a phenomenon it is. What is it about us, Westerners, that is so destructive? Why do we have to pull everybody down so frequently? What has happened to us that we live like this? And therefore we lose the potential for that, that uh, transformative, transcendent, uh, uh, infinite potential of the human being to emerge. We don't allow it any longer. We need to come to India. We need to take note of what the gods have told us of past and present. Without denying their humanity, And sometimes the gods come to us in, in rather unusual and in rather unexpected ways. I was speaking to you yesterday about the visit to Sri Ramana's and to the, uh, uh, the ashram and staying there for a few days. And one of our friends, Sandra, invited us to meet with uh, a, a young Indian woman whose name is Priti. It means uh, love in uh, Hindi. And she told us before we arrived, of her, of her story. And the story of Priti is that she's now 29 years of age. And when she was 18 years of age, she was uh, uh, attending college, she was a swimmer, and had won a number of competitions in the school. And she went to the sea at, um, at um, Pondicherry, and just two or three kilometers from Pondicherry. And her and some friends went into the water, only waist deep, and by one of those freak events that take place, the wave came, it turned her upside down, it broke her neck, and she was paralyzed for the rest of her life. 
And her father, family had lived for a couple of years in Chicago in the United States, came, got a house. They lived very, very simply for several months in Turuvanamalai. <coughs> had a guru named uh, uh, Sri Kumar from um, Tiru. And they established a home there. And I think you can just give a sense, imagine the, 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 the situation. Young woman, the whole of life to look forward to. The neck is, is broken. The amount of movement in the body is minimal. Next to, next to nothing. And there she is. And for some, it would, one would feel such depression, such despair, completely, totally reliant on the kindness and the love of the mother, the father, and, uh, and uh, others there. And we went to talk with her. And we went again and again. And what was quite extraordinary about this 29-year-old woman was the love and the wisdom and the kindness that shone through her. So to the eyes we looked and when we, when we talked with her when the eyes saw a, a situation of a person lying in the bed or in, the, or in the specially adapted wheelchair and as I say hardly able to move and having gone through all the loss, the change of movement, of activity, totally reliant on anybody who might come to, to see her. And in that communication, speaking of something greater than herself, an extraordinary degree of presence and, and love. And when that happens, the, the person in their frailty, in their fragility, just imagine, it's night time. There are mosquitoes in the house. The mosquitoes land at times on her face. But she can't bring the hand to the face. Does she ask her mother? Does she call for her mother? Please come and remove these, this mosquito, these mosquitoes. And if she does, then the mother comes and removes the mosquitoes. And then she goes back. And perhaps another mosquito comes. Or a strange sound in the room comes. And she can't do anything because she's paralyzed from the neck downwards. What would it be to live like this? What is the human spirit that transcends its own situation? It's not bitter. It's not full of self-regret or self-hate. It's not thinking of oneself as a lower human being. And we went one evening to a workshop and the workshop was on letting out one's emotions. And the workshop leader told her very, at the very end, um, he didn't realize, he didn't see, somehow, that this was a paralyzed woman in a specially adapted wheelchair uh, there, and told her with the pillow to hit the pillow, get your anger out. And we looked at is not the eyes open? Is not this workshop leader able to see that in front of him, in a small room of 14 people, that this is a paralyzed woman who could barely move her hand? How can she hit a cushion? 
And we asked her afterwards at her, at her home, how was that to have that voice of authority, that male authority uh, uh, telling you to hit, the, shouting at you to hit the pillow? Some it could be the pain and the hurt and the vulnerability could last for days and weeks at this. She handled it beautifully. No ill will. No feeling of being misunderstood. Misseen. Didn't take it on board. We listened and they thought, this is a God. She transcends her limitations. She speaks of her infinite potential. She shares her love and presence. And then we went to Duruvanamalai to visit the ashram, to watch and listen to the satsangs, to go to the bhajans. For the two of us, the meeting with Priti was the highlight. <coughs> and if I had my way, whether I'd be down there again, this quite extraordinary young woman, I would have her sitting up here like a rocket if she could move and just speaking about her awarenesses, her love, her wisdom, her sharing, and to remind us, because it speaks of something greater than the, the tragedy of the physical event. We need our gods. <laughs> <laughs> we need our gurus, and the gurus means the giver of light. <laughs> so we say, here am I. My gosh, I'm just a whoever I am. I'm just an ordinary person. I'm, I'm not a god. I'm just trying to get on with my life as, as best I can. I'm just trying to deal with things as, as they pass. I'm, I'm blessed. I'm not, I don't have that terrible kind of handicap that Pretty has. But still, perhaps I'm handicapped in other ways. Perhaps my mind and my tendencies and my patterns are controlling and limiting me and restricting me. Perhaps my mental and emotional handicaps are blocking me from expressing my infinite potential. Perhaps I'm just as handicapped, but it's in another way. I want to say, well, how do I work with this? How do I come out of this finiteness? Is it possible for myself as a human being to taste what the gods taste? To touch upon that infinite expression of, of, of things? And sometimes when we, when we, when we look, as, a, as yesterday, for example, and Radha commented and there, not unusual on a, on a retreat. Few people are feeling rather angry, rather irritated, rather agitated. Would be speaking about it, to your credit, sometimes in the small groups or in, or in the one-to-one, or just going unspoken. But there's certain kind of tensions and negativities and fault-finding uh, emerge actually it's quite a good sign things are happening there's a little bit of bubbling going on inside of oneself uh, there. there's always some poor sods whom one can get really upset and angry with whatever it might be person's always sitting in the hall here and uh, sneezing and coughing and farting and blowing their nose and one doesn't get much indication of the, of of the God coming out of them. (laughs) (laughs) 
and, uh, and sometimes it's the people who, uh, uh, who uh, turn up uh, uh, late uh, for, the, for the sitting. They wander, they, they wander in like it's a football match and um, drop themselves down, uh, down on the seat and they get a bit bored after 10 minutes and then wander off into the sunset, uh, <laughs> etc. and climbing over people and pushing them aside to get out the door, etc. So this helps to encourage some negativity. <laughs> and so there's some negativity which is coming. Then we want to look more and more carefully, and let's say with the, I don't know how it was for Rada, but for our small group today, a lovely group and lots of lovely experiences and insights were being shared. But just to go back to this movement of the aversion, it's a vitally important area to look into and inquire. It reflects the condition of the self. It reflects the combination or the meeting, shall we call it, of perceptions and memory and thoughts and opinions and feelings and views and so forth. And that meeting, it, it collides, it grips itself together with the self in the middle. And we believe the message. We believe we have the right to be angry. We have the right to be negative. We believe in the fault-finding. We identify with it. It's, it's such a, an intensity that can go with it. Then we, we ask, we're looking more deeper. What's it coming from? What, what's giving support? What's allowing this? And sometimes, for some, it would be looked at, the anger, the negativity, the blame, from a kind of ethical issue, which is perfectly appropriate. One says, I don't want to be like this. That's already the ethic is coming in. I don't want to be angry with other people. I don't want to be laying numbers on the other people. I don't want to be doing on myself. Because the anger can go in either direction. Easy. Self or other. Self or other or both. So I don't want to be engaged my life uh, in that way. And, and therefore there's, a, there's an ethic. For some, it's a matter of clarity. If there is some anger inside of me, blame, resentment, hostility, negativity, or any of the other uh, emotions, it's actually distorting how things really are. So it's not a matter of ethic, I just simply want to see things clearly. And if I'm angry, or if I'm afraid, or if I'm greedy or selfish or whatever, I, it's stopping, I can't see clearly. Because my mind is disturbed. And in the disturbance of my mind and my feet, I can't see clearly. And if I'm going to live, let me live and see it clearly. And I can't if, I got, if I'm constantly caught up in my greed, my negativity, my fears, my worries, my anxieties. I can't see clearly. So for some it's an ethic. It's a principle. And for others, it's a wisdom. Whatever the intention and the motive is, still, hopefully, we can look at it. And when we speak here of, uh, uh, of anger, always uh, to bear in mind with regard to this, we're speaking of a particular kind of movement which is based on a negative or unpleasant feeling which is directed to the general or the specific and it's a, it's a movement in which we uh, often brought about by two or three conditions. One of them, very simple one, I can't get what I want. 
and it's generated a pressure and the pressure has generated the anger. Last night, this is India, great entertainment. <laughs> Heaven on the other side of the wall for the guests <laughs> and hell <laughs> for the meditators. <coughs> Two considerably different perceptions of the same event. Who is to say which is the right one? So and there, there's entertainment going on, and, uh, and now these days in uh, India, they, sometimes they have guns. I've seen them there, and they, and they fight and fire them. And I remember not so long ago, we were in Saranath, there was a wedding there, and they're firing the guns, and the bullet hit a branch and <laughs> fell down. It nearly killed somebody. <laughs> So, be mindful if you're under a tree at a wedding. <laughs> Catch it. And so for some, the perception reveals fantastic, wonderful wedding, having a great time, etc. And, and for the others, the quiet meditators, lying there in a horizontal posture. <laughs> yeah. And all this noise and banging which is, which is going on. The emergence of any anger. When is it going to stop? When it, agitation, emotion, agitation that is going on. Is the self. It's the movement of the self in its mortality. Not immortality, in its mortality. I can't get what I want. And what I want is for them to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Brahma is never far away. <laughs> I want them or that, whatever it is, to uh, stop. Not for itself. Not because it will make the guests happy. <laughs> I wanted to stop so that I, the I, the royal, imperial I, can sleep. <laughs> so, when we're caught in some movement of the anger, whatever expression or form it may take, that stepping back for a moment what is the I demanding what is the I demanding and to catch to catch that some people just been talking uh, today said what wedding <laughs> what music including me you're right actually <laughs> so some of us Heard that? You can ask them to turn it off if you like. <laughs> Quieter. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you can ask them to turn it off. Chad. 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 Oh, Chad went. <laughs> nice. I love it. 
Om. Very good. <laughs> so, some, some of us, well, just reminding me, including moi, <laughs> went up to, to bed, and I'm uh, up there in the, the penthouse sleep, uh, suite up there with the tin roof and the, which leaks when it rains. Wonderful place. So they're nice, clear. The sound can go uninterrupted. <laughs> There's no wall to break it up. It just goes straight through the room. And however, I just went to bed, whatever time, 10, 30, 11, uh, just lay down and boom. So day's over, finished, out of sleep there. But others, like Radha, she said, she reported to staying over there that for her, that if there was 30 minutes of unbroken sleep, it was uh, a miracle <laughs> due to her great cities or whatever it might be. <laughs> there. Either way, in the perception, in the view, one area, when we can't get what we want and there is some pressure with it, anger will come. We are asking ourselves, is there another way to deal with this? Can I find another way to handle situations where that which I want is quite reasonable to want to sleep or whatever, yet it doesn't lead into pressure and anger of any kind. There's far too much anger in this world. It's in the homes, isn't it? What's the figure? Something like one in four homes. There's domestic violence. We all know about it. Perhaps we've experienced it. There's a tremendous amount of anger on our streets. Tremendous amount of anger in racism and homophobia and uh, violence against uh, uh, groups. There's wars and conflict. It's all anger. It may be expressed as an emotion. It may be expressed in the, in the uh, emotionless signature on a piece of paper which uh, makes war on others. And these days, we don't, in the West, we don't declare war anymore. That's stopped. We just make war. We go into countries and we tell them, this is for your own good. <laughs> it's anger. It's violence. It's the rage against people. And the rage comes back and it goes back and it comes back. So we say, we want to look, is there another way for human beings to be together from the most subtle negativity to some expression of anger, I'm not getting what I want, to the intensification of it into violence and terror. Terror by the state or terror by the organisation, it's still terror. And that's a huge challenge for us to explore because it goes, as I say, from the subtle to the gross. There is another way too and anger easily comes. But it's a hard one to deal with. And that is when we feel hurt. When we feel hurt and we haven't the emotional wisdom, the emotional intelligence and skillfulness to deal with it, it will easily become anger. And therefore we have to find the blame, to place the blame. I remember some years ago with 9-11, I was on a, a flight on that day over the United States. The pilot issued a message to all the passengers. 
that all planes in United States airspace have to return back to the point of de place of departure. So our plane, one of 56 planes that left London Heathrow Airport for the United States, had to return back there. No planes were allowed to land in the United States. We weren't informed why, and we found out when we arrived back in London. Wow, terrible acts of terror. And the psyche of the nation, more than 90%, more than 90% felt hurt by what had happened by the events in New York City at Twin Towers by what happened in Washington DC by what happened when the plane went down in that field in Pennsylvania and when a person or people can't handle the hurt can't, the national psyche can't deal with it can't look then it has to seek revenge not holding accountable criminal act as, a, as, a, as a, a crime and held to be held before the judiciary. No, the criminal act became the criminal act, the invasion of the people of Afghanistan and all the subsequent history that's gone with it. Violence begets the violence. It starts with the feeling and the thoughts and the views it starts with men and women who are not looking at themselves. It starts with a sense of righteousness. And in all of that, whether it's on the gross scale or on the subtle scale, our practice is to look at it. Not to suppress it, not to call it bad, not to call it wrong, but to look at it. To see, can we as human beings bring out something else? Something deeper and authentic? It's a huge challenge. So we, we check. Is the anger coming from not getting what I want? Can I respond in another way? Is the anger arising because something or someone has hurt me? And I can't deal with this feeling of being hurt. So I want to hurt back. I want that person to feel as I felt. then the abuser hurts another and that other person feels to be abused and the person finds it difficult to feel abused there's a reaction against it so wants to abuse back and this dynamic goes on all over this planet we have to explore another way with it check in with ourselves and often it's just a wave that comes to pass so some of you yesterday may have experienced feeling angry, negativity, upset, agitation, all of that. And it's just a wave, moving, arising, staying for a while and passing away. And how a number of you reported, new day, fresh feelings arise, fresh experiences arise, and it's just gone. And if we can just remember, what arises just... It's just a little taste of Brahma. What stays is a taste of Vishnu. What passes is a taste of Shiva. Just arises, stays and passes. If we keep recognizing that, it would be easier to move through. It just comes to go. It just comes to go. <coughs> Sometimes, in that 
movement with a lot of thought. So you might be thinking about somebody, thinking a lot about somebody, too much about somebody. <laughs> they would really be worried if they knew just how much you're thinking about them. <laughs> and in that continuity of thought, there's impressions which are building up. Sometimes there's no space. You sit down on the cushion and before your backside has actually touched the cushion, the thought has started. And it goes on and on and on. There's no space inside, just thinking, 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 thinking. And then suddenly at the end you hear, Oh! Where am I? Not who am I, where am I? <laughs> And then one is kind of brought back for the moment. Some don't even hear the bell. <laughs> People walk out of the room, they say, wow, it's a really serious meditator there. <laughs> <laughs> They're still thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes in the stream of thoughts, the intensity of the stream of thoughts which are arising, Whatever, with the pleasant or unpleasant, that's going along with it. The vasana, that tendency, boom, 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 that's going on. What is vital to remember is when one comes to the end of it, because everything comes to its end, when one comes to the end with it, to ask oneself clearly, am I carrying anything of that impression? So you're thinking, thinking is an example about somebody and you're really telling yourself in that thinking when I see her, when I see him, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell her. The probability they're not ready for your great enlightenment. <laughs> so the thinking thing is going on. At the end of all the stream of thinking the residue of the impression can stay. The thought stopped you've got somebody else to target. <laughs> so the thought about that person has come to its uh, end, but the impression hasn't. And we have an impression, but the impression is not the truth. You are not an impression. And we end up easily communicating through the impression. You want to be able to let go to let dissolve, to let fade away, to bring the force of Shiva, shall we say, to the dissolution of the impression. Because in those dialogues that go on inside, the conceit of our mind is, the arrogance of our mind is, we think we know what the other person is going to say. And so I'm going to say this, and then she or he will say that, then I'll say that. <laughs> And that will finish them off once and for all. <laughs> and then they will treat me as a god as I deserve to be treated. <laughs> so in that, those dialogues that go on with other people, whoever it, it, it might, might be, this other person in the dialogue is you.
It's you. <laughs> and there's this oneself, as it were, as it were, going on about some other self, and the other self is not nobody out there. They're not out there. It's you. <laughs> Such a phenomenon we are. We live in the world of not of the gods, not of human beings. We live in the ghosts of our inner life. They're the ghosts wandering around inside of us. And we keep bringing them back out of the dead to have a conversation with them. <laughs> we are truly bizarre creatures. Sometimes there is a quietening down. Oh, Allah is merciful. Inner life is quiet and peaceful. Body is calm. We feel it in our walking, standing, sitting, reclinings. There. They're precious moments. Not only precious for itself, the ghosts have gone quiet inside. The forces of arising, staying and passing are not the priority. And in, in that, then we can look again a little bit at this awareness and this, this sense of I. And we can just explore a little bit more, take a little bit more interest in it and the phenomena of its arising. And then, whoa, sometimes the way we think things are may not be as we think they are. Referred this morning a little bit to, to the past. And sometimes we will say in everyday life, oh, I have existed for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever. I, I have existed. And there is an idea that of a permanent continuity of the same person. It's just me, today, me, yesterday, last week, last year, ten years, and if that me is just the same person all the way through, if that's the case, what do you want to work on yourself for? Not going to change anything. It's just I today, I yesterday, I the day before, it's the same old I, and it's just going on through time and there is some kind of permanent continuity of the eye so all the working, practicing, etc, etc the eye is just going to continue on through <coughs> well, why bother? and if the eye is continuing just the same then we can't change we're stuck, we're trapped with it and then one says, oh no, 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 Christopher and I realise that there's no permanent eye the eye keeps changing. So that eye, when I was a little child, little boy or a little girl, is not the same as this one now. It's quite different then. It's very different. You, know, you can look at a photograph of me when I was two or three years old and I didn't have a beard, and uh, <laughs> etc. And I'm wearing different clothes. So the eye, from then, so I'm, I'm quite different. If this eye is quite different from years ago, then we don't have to take any responsibility for anything that happened in the past. Because it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it was some other eye. <laughs> this eye is quite different. I'm not taking responsibility for beating that person up. I'm not taking responsibility for all that stupidity. That was some other eye. It's nothing to do with me. 
So if we have a continuity of I, we can't change and we're stuck. And if we say the I is changing there, then the old I has got no relationship to the present one, so that we don't have to have any responsibility for anything that's, that's happened to us. Why, why bother to even reflect on what happened to us in the past if there was no I in the past to, that had any connection with the one in the present? Why bother? So continuity of I is a little bit of a myth. And I changing, and a different I keep coming up, it also a little, seems a bit of a myth because why bother with anything? Then someone says, ah, it's both. A bit of it's com- permanent and continuing time, and there's a bit which is changing. Well, please tell me which bit is the permanent <laughs> bit <laughs> and which bit is the changing bit. I can't find it. I don't know if you've had any luck. So even the most ordinary concepts or the ordinary perceptions of things in the eye, in the awareness, nothing seems so substantial it must be absolutely true not a continuing eye because we can say gosh I've really changed not a changing eye because then it would be different from the present one no, no view not both because we can't find the continuous bit and we can't find the discontinuous bit so the only view we have is just the view and it'd be a foolish person to say, well, this is the real one. This is the only one that counts. There are more questions and explorations and the touch of the deep. It just helps rather naturally, I would say, to bring out this whole phenomena of the self, of the I. And there's an extraordinary place in the great field of existence. Sometimes, finally, in the settledness, in the stillness, in the, the uh, preciousness of the silence, of the element of silence, which is, which is very precious, it's as if, as if, that the world as we know it, I mean, the feelings, thoughts, uh, uh, states of mind, uh, the being, the body, life, just kind of rests. And then we ask ourselves, and the eye is at rest as well. It's not agitated, it's not, we're not doing anything. So everything is at rest. And this beauty, it's a beauty, to be, for the being to feel totally at rest is not an end in itself. It may give access to very deep meditations. And some of you here, both present and in the past, have had you know, precious and deep absorptions and deep meditations and they are uh, they're important and valuable and in that deep uh, rest this is important here the world of name and form using language the uh, Buddha language here for a moment is rather quiet form means a sight the sound their forms the smells their other forms taste their other forms touch there are other forms and the names that go with them you say ah the sound comes the bell name the bell the form the sound and we live in this world of names and forms 
In the same way with our so-called inner life, there's the form, the state of the mind. For the moment we're calling it calmness. We're calling it relaxation. That's the form that the mind has taken. It's resting in that form. Or it's resting in formless, we might say. So in that form, or formless, and there's the name which is given to it. Ah, oh, silence is given to it, name. Stillness. So the world appears, reveals itself in the great field of name and form and how we relate to it. And we tend to think that that is the real world. It's the conventional world. It's the world of name and form. Is the world of name and form ultimately how things really are? Or is it, has it come, has it emerged through our minds, through our interactions, say, ah, the world is name and form. In the silence, <coughs> in that consciousness of being conscious, what is revealing the world of name and form? What is that which reveals? Name and form cannot reveal name and form. Name and form cannot reveal name and form. The, the bell can't say, I am the bell. The consciousness, the awareness, says the bell. It gives a name to the sound. We give names to much. In our silence and in our stillness, and silence and stillness is still a name, and silence and stillness is an important thing, that which is not name and form reveals name and form. The world of name and form enters into us, stays for a while, and passes. Right now, there's the world of name and form, called a group of people, making reference to human beings sitting together, listening, one speaking, various sounds coming in. It's the world of name and form we're in. What is revealing this world of name and form is non-name and form. It's empty of the name and form. We're deeply interested in this emptiness which reveals everything. We're deeply interested in this no name, no form which allows everything to be possible. Our humanity and our gods. Name and form is only known to that which is non-named and non-formed. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings take interest in the movement of the eye. May all beings love our gods. Let's speak.
of that which is greater than the self. Quiet a minute or two. Time's just turned to five o'clock, so standing or further sitting and groups. Thank you. <coughs>